now the pastor of these churches uh, on the island of Crete. Uh, we uh, initially kind of half-jokingly, half-seriously referred to it as Crete Presbyterian Church. Um, and uh, that's only partly tongue-in-cheek. Uh, given especially that chapter 1 had to do with elders and, and elders in the local congregation. Uh, Titus chapter 3, we will read the first 10 verses of, of chapter 3. So uh, let me ask that you would stand as we read God's Word together. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. But think these things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. We must pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work now, even as You uh, are, are mentioned in this passage as the One who has, has come and granted renewal, regeneration, uh, rebirth. And we pray that You would now be present in Your Word to apply it to our hearts and our lives, that we might know it, understand it, live by it, but be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. To His honor and to His glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If, you, uh, if you've been with us the entire time of, uh, through this Letter, you've noticed that so far we've been instructed in uh, church order. Uh, in fact, we quite simply could have looked at chapter one as sort of doctrine and duty in the church. Uh, chapter two, doctrine and duty uh, within the home or in the household. And then chapter three, doctrine and duty uh, elsewhere, uh, in other places, in the, in the public sphere, uh, I guess. Uh, we've seen him uh, give us that structure and order uh, throughout this letter. And here in chapter 3, he turns our attention to our relationships with, with other people. And, and I, I feel a little obligated, I guess, uh, to call your attention to the very first word of chapter 1. Uh, you know, 
Lucas and I were laughing the other day um, at some medicine we had in the house. I can't remember now, but it was ultra strength, whatever. Whatever it was, it was the ultra strength version of it. And it it sort of reminded me, we kind of laughed about the fact that there were days when you just got medicine. And then there was extra strength. And then there was maximum strength. And somehow or another, they found a way to go beyond maximum strength. I mean, by definition, the maximum strength is the maximum strength you can get. And then, you know, they've, they've created this ultra strength. There's always this hunger and thirst for new and improved. It's on labels. It's on a box. It's on the package. It's, it's on whatever. It's the new and improved version of that. And you have to wonder how much newer and how much improveder can we keep getting? Yes, I made up a word, improveder. No kids. Improveder is not a word. I just made it up. On the fly. Where do you go after new and improved? Where do you go beyond extra, <laughs> maximum, ultra strength? I mean, but that's what we want, right? And, and that's so common in our culture, it's actually invaded the church. The church is now looking for the latest, greatest, newest, improvedest, whatever, fill in the blank. But notice Paul tells Titus, your job... Your primary function in this is to remind your people of these truths. That word means you know it already. It means they've already been taught it. It means they've heard this. It means, Titus, don't go in there and teach them some new and improved, you know, let's work the latest, greatest fad into the church. I mean, it's working in the culture, but we got to get it in here. The gospel hadn't changed in 2,000 years. The, the, in many ways, the, the function of pastoral ministry has a lot to do with saying the same thing over and over and over again. You will accuse me from time to time of sounding like a broken record. If I got it every time I said it, I might think about stop saying it, not saying it anymore. Stopping saying it. I don't know how the grammar works. If I understood, if I got it, if I mastered it, every time I said it, I would quit saying it. I assume, I hope, I trust, I'm not alone in that. And so Paul tells Titus, just, you need to know, you need to go and remind them of these things. These are things they they know already. Now that doesn't mean they're doing it. In fact, there are Greek Uh, historians, biographers, uh, Polybius and somebody else's name, I don't remember now, both both describe Cretans as sort of a rebellious lot. So it's not like they, I mean, they've heard it, they know it, but they're not really doing it. And so Titus, go remind them that they need to be submissive to rulers and authorities. There will be times when pastoral ministry, when sermons, uh, when teaching, when conversations, when coffee and lunch, whatever the case may be, begins to sound, I've heard this before, I've heard this all before, I've heard this all before, and yet we don't get it. We need to hear it again. So what is Titus to remind these Cretan believers of? Well, notice first, he's to remind them of what they are 
to be. Now, I want you to, if you just glance through, um, you just glance through the, the verses, you'll notice, especially early, the first couple, three, two or three verses, there's a lot in there about, and now in English, all the be, to, to be verbs, they're all helping verbs for the most part, but the emphasis in this passage on what we are and what we are to be more than what we are to do. And every time there is a to do, it's grounded in a to be. And so that seems to be the thread uh, throughout this passage. We're to be submissive uh, to rulers and authorities over us. Again, you know this. We could just skip and you're kind of sitting there going, well, I get it. Submit to governing authorities. We all know that we can't do whatever we want every time we come to a four-way stop. We all know we can't make up speed limits as we go. We all know that red means stop and green means go, and we're not allowed to change that. That would be chaos. I mean, so we get it, right? We, we understand that we're supposed to submit to rulers and authorities, to the, the civil government, the civil magistrate, the civil authorities that have been placed over us. It would be utter chaos if we all just ignored the laws of the land and made them up as we go along. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Uh, and we'll see this. Uh, Paul says this in another uh, passage as well. We know we're to submit to the civil magistrate. And there's a reason for it. Uh, Romans 13 actually gives us the reason why we are to submit to them. Not just because it would be chaos if we didn't. Although that would be true too. But Romans 13 verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appoint, appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And so we know that if we disobey, if we're not submissive to the rulers, the civil magistrates placed over us, then we're actually rebelling against God because they are there by God's divine appointment. He has determined the government. He has placed those people in office. And so when we submit to them, we submit to God who put them there. It's His providence. It's His hand at work in our world that establishes those in the civil magistrate, in positions of rule and authority. Now, there is, of course, an implication there in Romans 13 that Paul doesn't mention here in Titus 3, and that is that when those civil authorities demand that you disobey God you are required to disobey them instead. But that's a sermon for another text another time, although it would be perfectly appropriate just a couple of days before elections. We must obey God rather than men. But how that plays out in our lives is what we'll save for another day.
It's not really the aim of Titus 3. But Paul tells Titus, remind the believers there, remind the the members of Crete Presbyterian Church to be submissive to those in authority. But it goes further than that. It's not just submit to them, but notice then there's sort of next level, verse 1, be obedient to them. Oh, and it goes beyond that. Be ready for every good work. The reality is that as believers, we should be active, participating, contributing members of society. It's not just enough for us to avoid the ire and punishment of the government. We should seek their good. We should seek their blessing. We should seek the honor and the good of the city in which God has placed us. Athens should be a better place because believers live here. Athens should should grow and prosper. The, The mayor's job, the city council's job ought to be easier because believers are living out the gospel in this community. You know, there have been times, some in very recent past, Nancy and I, by the way, connected with that, have kind of gotten into um, designated survivor lately. We just discovered this on Netflix. And I don't know how long it's been around. I don't know how many of you are like, yeah, that's been out for ages. And y'all are just old and lame. And that may be true. Well, that is true. But um, there's this whole uh, incident. If you've never seen it, it's basically based on this notion. Well, this a cabinet member is stuck in an undisclosed location during uh, the State of the Union address and the worst happens, and he becomes president. Okay, then you have this governor who says, you're not my president. We could create the hashtag, not my president, not my ruler, not my governing authority. And we could then say, you know what? I don't like that guy's not a believer. Hashtag not my president. I don't like the decisions he's making. Hashtag not my president. We could eat up Twitter and Facebook and whatever social media uh, outlets we choose to use with that sort of campaign. The problem with that is he's there, he's in that office by God's appointment. And you may think to yourself, well, I mean, you know, I would obey him if he, you know, were godly. Do you remember Paul's audience? Certainly in Romans, and it's also true here in Titus, both Rome and Crete are under, what was that guy's name? Oh, Caesar. You know, the one who is to be worshipped like a god. A pagan ruler. I'm pretty sure. And, And wherever you fall on the political spectrum, I think we can all agree on this. We've had bad presidents. I don't think we've ever had anyone as wicked as pretty much any Roman ruler in the first century. And yet in that context, Paul says, submit and obey and be ready for every good work, even under that context, even in that setting, even when Caesar is on his throne, a pagan, godlike of a man demanding that he be worshipped as a God. We're reminded 
of our responsibilities to those in authority over us. As Paul reminds us what we're to be. He also reminds us that we have responsibilities to those around us. We have not just vertical responsibilities to those over us, but we have responsibilities to each other, to those around us as well. Horizontal responsibilities, and they're given to us in verse 2. And you can follow the pattern. And verse 2 follows the exact same pattern that verse, verse 1 does. From actively harsh, speaking evil against someone, to actively kind, perfectly courteous towards all people. I, do you even need a reminder not to speak abusively to other people? I mean, isn't it true that even when we lash out in anger and we just lay into someone, and the, the meanest person you know who is just constantly berating people and talking down to people and talking bad about people behind their back, speaking evil constantly, the meanest person you know knows what they're doing they shouldn't be doing. And that didn't stop them. But even they know they're not supposed to be talking that way, speaking that way about others. We know that verbal abuse is wrong. We know that we shouldn't lash out in anger to people like that and verbally abuse others, to speak evil of other people. But notice, as the... As the progress is made in verse 2 from actively harsh to actively kind, it moves through not just verbal abuse, but any kind of quarreling, any kind of contentiousness, any kind of stirring up the pot. You know, there are people that are just like that long wooden spoon a witch would use. There are people that you really, I mean, you kind of want to make up, you know, long wooden spoon as a, a nickname for people like that. They, they just love... To stir the pot. They just love to be the ones kind of in the mix, causing trouble, creating strife between people, and then kind of backing up out of the way and watching it explode. There are people that just love quarreling, that love to create that kind of strife and contentiousness within the body. But instead of that, be gentle to other people and show all mildness or perfect courtesy toward all people. Maybe, maybe you are able sometimes to show some kind of courtesy to some people. Maybe you're even able to show some kind of courtesy to all people. There might even be a few people to which you can show all kinds of courtesy. But that's not what the passage says. I mean, after any one of those, we would pat ourselves on the back and say, look how good I am. I was just, I showed mildness to that person, perfect courtesy to that person. Well, how about yesterday and, and that other guy? Well, not so much. The passage says perfect courtesy or all mildness toward all people pretty high bar to hit. But that's what we're called to be. 
We're called to be submissive and obedient and to those in authority over us and to seek their good. We're also called to be loving and kind and patient with those around us. In fact, it's such a big deal that Paul actually returns to the subject in verse 10. How do you handle someone who stirs up division? What do you do with the long wooden spoon? One warning, two warnings, you're out. That's, that's the language. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That person is warped and sinful and he's self-condemned. Have nothing more to do with people who are constantly stirring up trouble within the church body. Stirring up quarrels, stirring up division, seeking to segment out uh, the, the congregation. Have nothing more to do with them. We're reminded of, of what Christians are supposed to be. We're also reminded of what Christians used to be in verse 3. You know, one of the things, um, some of you have heard me say this before. It's probably been too long since I've said it again. Uh, there are basically three arguments for Christian unity within the church fellowship. One is, it's commanded by God. Okay, that, that's all we need, right? I mean, we don't need any more. I mean, all the, the, the commands to one anothering within the church fellowship, that's riddled throughout Scripture. I mean, Scripture is just riddled with those things. So one is the clear command of Scripture. One is that we share a common destiny. We're, we're the only institution. Not we, Grace Covenant. We, the church. The church on the earth is the only institution that is permanent. Pick an organization you belong to. It ends when the world ends. Your fraternity, your sorority, done. I mean, take your pick. This is the only one that lasts beyond the return of Christ. At the very end of Revelation, guess what there is? The church. It's still there. So one of the arguments, one of the reasons for unity within the body is the common destiny. The other is the common starting point. And let's own who we are. We'll admit it. We own it. We're a Reformed Presbyterian Congregation, yes, we're Calvinists. Yes, we believe in total depravity. Yes, we believe all that. We should lead the way in this. The idea of a Calvinist who takes himself too seriously or that looks down on others for their struggles is completely indefensible. We should be at the head of the class in this. Why? Because we gladly admit, yes, we all have the exact same starting point. We're given that starting point right here in verse 3. And our only hope is God's grace, which, by the way, is verses 4 to 7. But notice he unpacks for us who we used to be. We used to be people who served not those over us, but who served ourselves. Notice verse 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, 
hated by others and hating one another. We were once ruled by our own wickedness. And notice too, in verse 3, you get both inward and outward. You get, you get inward mental uh, inability or, or mental failure, but then you also get uh, morally reprehensible uh, outwardly as well. Mentally lost, morally depraved. We were once ruled by our own various passions and pleasures. In fact, we were enslaved to them. We wanted our good. We wanted our glory. We wanted our comfort. We wanted our honor. And, and it doesn't look the same for everyone, right? For some, it means eating too much. For others, it means not eating at all. For some, it means laziness and never exercising. For others, it means sort of enslaved to exercise. It could mean any number of things. It plays out in so many different ways. But we were once enslaved to our own passions and pleasures. We were disobedient and deluded. Our minds, we lacked understanding. We, um, we, we, we couldn't understand the truth of, of God's Word. We didn't understand the things of this world. We instead sought our own glory and honor. We thought right was wrong and wrong was right. We thought good was evil and evil was good. We, we lacked any understanding. We were deluded in our sinfulness. Which of course meant we were enslaved to our passions and pleasures. But then not only were we mentally, inwardly lost, but we were also morally corrupt because notice the rest of the verse, we passed our days in malice and envy. When someone did something wrong to us, we pursued retribution. I don't get mad. I get even. We were given to malice. We sought, if somebody did something wrong to us, we went after them to pay them back. If somebody had something good happen to them, we were envious. We hated the idea that somebody else would be honored. That someone else would have this great inheritance. That someone else would have something wonderful happen to them. Instead of rejoicing with them, we were led to envy. We were self-serving, deluded, selfish people. And when you put a bunch of those people in a room together, guess what you get? You see, here's the problem with sin. Sin makes me worship me. Sin makes you worship you. Well, guess what? We're guaranteed to have conflict because I think you should be worshiping me too. Because I kind of like me. I think I'm pretty good. And so if I am my, uh, my own God, and I think you ought to be worshiping me, we're going to have conflict. Well, that's exactly what he says. Not only were we hateful, not only we, were we worth hating because we were terrible, wicked, selfish people, but we then hated in return, verse 3 says. Paul tells us, reminds us what we were, what we were supposed to be. 
He also reminds us what we used to be. And then He reminds us again why we can use the past tense at the beginning of verse 3. Did you notice verse 3? We once were. You know what that word means? It means you're not anymore. That's what were means. Were is the past tense of to be. So it means not you are, this is what you're like, but this is what you used to be. And the implication there is you're not anymore. Why does Paul get to use a past tense verb at the beginning of verse 3? Because, verse 5, God saved us. The real aim of, of verses 4 to 7 the, the central sort of main verb of that whole passage shows up in verse 5. Verse 4, When the God, goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. You notice salvation is all of grace. Now, I know you know this. I'm going to remind you. This isn't new. And this isn't the first time we've said this here at Grace Covenant. But that's okay. It's my job to remind you. So let me remind you all over again that salvation is not by your works. This, by the way, is why the last uh, three Sundays we've actually used uh, chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Good Works as our affirmation of faith. To remind us all over again that I don't have any. Salvation's all of grace. How do you know? Well... Look at the first word of verse 4. There's the gospel in one word right there, by the way. But. That word means that everything that we've said so far, the conclusion makes no sense in light of reality. That's what the word but means. It means that the conclusion you reach absolutely is not grounded in all the sort of premises you laid out. So, We used to be like this. But we're not anymore. Why not? Because of God's grace. Because He in His loving kindness and goodness saved us. I mean, there's this whole long list of things we used to be in verse 3. And if what we're supposed to be in verse Verses in verse 1 and 2 doesn't match what we are, verse 3, or what we used to be in verse 3. How can, how can we have any hope of salvation? It's not by our works. It's not by our merit. It's not by our goodness. It's by His grace. Of course, we could just look at verse 5, which expressly says that salvation is not by because of works done by us, but according to His own mercy. So there's another reminder that salvation is all of grace. Or you could read the whole passage and notice all the passive verbs. Everything done in this salvation section, verses 4-7, to God does. The active verbs refer to God and the passive verbs refer to us. That means we didn't do anything. It means we didn't do it. He did it. He accomplished it. On our behalf. In other words, we don't deserve it. We don't match up. 
We're supposed to be verses 1 and 2. We used to be verse 3. And the only explanation for the difference is God's grace. Is verse 5, He saved us. In His mercy, because of His loving kindness, through the work of the Holy Spirit, He changed us. He actually renewed us. He took our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That's why we use language of rebirth, of renewal, of regeneration, of being made again. Because that's exactly what happens. is we're rebuilt, we're remade from the inside out by the work of the Holy Spirit. And notice... Verse 7, that salvation results in our justification, our being declared righteous before His sight by His grace, even though we don't deserve it. And it goes even further. It then results in our adoption. We become His children. We're heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see what Paul just did here? He traced, you used to be self-serving, self-loving, deluded, mentally lost, morally corrupt, given to your own passions and pleasures. And you're no longer that. Why not? Because He sent His Spirit to change your heart, to bring you to faith and repentance, to grant you this new life so that you might then be justified and actually have the right to call God your Father. We have all the privileges of the sons of God. Because of His grace. Why the the radical change from being driven by the seven vices in verse 3 to being driven by the seven virtues in verses 1 and 2? It's not because of our goodness. It's not because we're worth it. It's not because we woke up one morning and said, you know what? I'm going to do better. I'm going to stop doing that. And I'm going to start being, showing perfect courtesy to all people. It's because of His grace. It's because we've been made new in the whole man from the inside out. A new heart means new loves. Let me make a few applications from this passage. First, let me remind you again. That's probably going to bother me from now on, by the way. Just, just know that that is going to sort of haunt me from time to time. Um, let me remind you again, if you're trusting in your own good works, if you're trusting in your own goodness, if you're trusting in your own better than average and God grades on a curve relationship to other people, if that's your view of salvation, this passage reminds you that you have no goodness. You have no better than most. You have no, well, I'm better than the average, and so since God grades on a curve, then I'm going to get into heaven when that day comes. So I'm really okay. It really doesn't matter. Now, this passage says what you need more than anything is Christ. And so you go there to the cross and find forgiveness and the work of the Holy Spirit changing your heart, bringing you to faith in Christ. You need more than trying harder, you need Jesus. A second 
application. Notice that we as believers aren't made perfect immediately. Now, we're pretty good about knowing that about ourselves. We have a little harder time about knowing that when it comes to other people. We'll gladly recognize, well, our sanctification is a process. It takes time, and I'm not there yet. And then we'll turn around and hold you, other people, to the exact opposite standard. I expect you to have arrived on this issue by now. We're not made perfect immediately. We're made new. We're being renewed, but we aren't made yet perfect. That means that you struggle still with the vices in verse 3. It means that you will, because the sin nature is still there, because the old man still lives, you will wrestle with those things. But notice, you've heard this before, that our salvation doesn't free you from the struggle. It frees you to actually struggle. Apart from Christ, you don't struggle. You don't care to. You don't want to. You'll gladly be subject to your own passions and pleasures. But He enables us by His Spirit, by His grace, to struggle. Not to gain favor. Not to earn salvation. But as a result of it. Because the same Spirit that renews us dwells in us to be growing us in holiness. In other words, you and I need to seek the means of grace, word, sacraments, prayer, fellowship with other believers. We need to pursue those things to help us in that struggle. A third application. Notice the work of the Holy Spirit in this passage. His job is primarily applying salvation. His his job is an application job. His function within the Godhead is an application function. He didn't accomplish our salvation. He's not the one that suffered and bled and died on the cross in our place. That was the second person of the Godhead. But this third person of the Trinity uh, is at work even now. This is why we pray before every sermon that the, to the Holy Spirit specifically. Because it's His function to apply this Word to our lives, to, to use it and to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is primarily an application function. A fourth application. There's a gospel reason to obey those in authority over us. When publicly professing believers act as though they are above the law simply because they're Christians, they drag the name of Christ through the mud. And they actually do counter-evangelistic work. When, however, believers are submissive and obey their rulers and seek the good of the city, we actually are paving the way for evangelism. When we pray for our leaders and submit to them and seek their good and and to be a blessing to our community, we actually participate in evangelism. We pave the way for answering questions about why we do the things we do. We bring honor to the name of Christ. There's actually an evangelistic angle, aspect, to submitting to rulers over us. 
May the Holy Spirit grant to us the grace to serve Him by loving our city and to depend on Him for our spiritual growth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you loved us even while we were still in our sins, even when we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and all the rest. You still, in love, brought us to saving faith in Christ. We didn't have to get ourselves cleaned up first and come to you first so that you would then save us. We were enslaved to our own our own passions and pleasures. And so you freed us from that slavery so that we might find ourselves in bondage to Christ. Father, would you grant us the Spirit to to dwell in us, to encourage us, to enable us more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness, all to the honor and glory of Christ and to seek the good of our city that we can truly say Athens is a better place because Grace Covenant Church, because there are believers living in this community and living out the gospel at every corner. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.